0: Welcome to the 105th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore of the Land Stewardship Project. After several decades in the dairy business, Laverne and Mary Jo Forber decided to make some radical changes to their western Minnesota farm, In 2002, they sold their milk cows and began looking for ways to make a living on their 480 acres of hilly land while protecting and even improving its environmental health. They ended up converting most of the row crop land to grass and established a managed rotational grazing system for beef cattle. Today, only around 50 acres of the four-bird farm is planted to annual row crops. Keep in mind, this isn't exactly marginal farmland. Some of those acres that are now growing grasses once produced corn at the rate of 200 bushels per acre. Besides pasture, the Forbirds have also established around 40 acres of prairie on their most erodible acres. The farmers are working with various nonprofits, government agencies, and educational institutions to determine if the prairie grasses and forbs can turn a profit for their farm by serving as a feedstock for a local biofuels plant. On a recent summer day, the Forbirds hosted a tour of their Prairie Horizons farm, where farmers, natural resource professionals, students, and scientists could see firsthand how they're trying to make working lands conservation a centerpiece of their operation. Afterwards, I talked to Mary Jo and Laverne about how they're managing risk and what role biodiversity plays in working lands conservation. Laverne started out by giving me a little background on what prompted them to make such dramatic changes to their farm.
1: The dairy industry had gotten to be too much work for us with not very many rewards. It was unfair the amount of work you had to put in for what returns you got and after having cattle on our farm over many, many years, we knew we needed to have cattle to help us manage grasslands that we already had in perennial pastures. And we also wanted to quit growing corn and decided to get into the grass-finished beef beef business because we knew we needed some livestock, and we wanted to have an enterprise that could um, help us continue to farm. Benefits of grass-fed beef seemed to really be there for the nutritional aspects and also the quality of the land. We decided cattle was a good fit, and we decided on low-line Angus because they're a smaller breed, and they finish nicely on grass.
0: I think about four years ago, three, four years ago, you started an experiment working with the University of Minnesota, Morris, and some other researchers on you converted some acres, 30 acres or so, to native prairie.
1: Our most highly erodible fields were planted into a biomass mixture of grasses and forbs, and the forbs were used to help provide nitrogen for the grasses. It was also, we will be able to make hay off of these acres for cattle or let the cattle graze them to help manage so we don't have to burn it. So last year we did graze it, and we just might be trying to burn some next spring. Maybe we'll graze it instead, but time will tell next spring what happens. We wanted to get into a different aspect of farming and possibly growing seed for sale, grass seed, and we have a diverse prairie with 23 different grasses and forbs in that. It's now certified organic, and if we wanted to, we could sell it as certified organic prairie grass seed for anybody that wants to establish a prairie organically, the would have to source organic seeds, and we do have a source of that available now.
0: One thing maybe you had talked about before, I think Mary Jo has talked about this too, is there's a lot of excitement over, for example, using uh, native prairie systems for biofuels, that type of thing. That market has not developed yet. The technology isn't there. There isn't really a viable market right now. But with an operation like yours, it seems with the livestock, you're able to it's it's often a cart before the horse. Do you get the supply going? Do you get the market going, the processing going? How do you get all that to work together? In this case, you're able to get the grasses started, the native prairies started. And in the meantime, while you're maybe waiting for a, a, the biofuels market to develop it if, it, if it ever does, you're able to use it, get some economic value out of it through the cattle, through some other means that way, it seems.
1: That's right. A lot of interest was spurred when I was on the. CVAC board, the ethanol plant, and Benson and I was on the feedstock committee for cellulosic ethanol, and we were looking at corn stover and then corn cobs, and I brought up the idea of growing grass, and I wanted CVAC to be a sort of a partner with us to help us justify the cost of growing grass for the seed, the preparation, and also to be converting from one uh, production of corn and wheat and beans to biomass grasses instead, but CVAC wasn't willing to go along with putting some money into our project and we were lucky to team up with some other players like the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy and the DNR and US Fish and Wildlife, Chippewa River watershed project, the Pope County Working Lands team and Pheasants Forever all see the benefits of what we're trying to accomplish and You don't just go out and plant prairie grasses and expect to get a yield the year that you plant them. You can't wait for the biomass markets to emerge. You have to be ahead of the game and have the biomass ready for the market. So what do you do in the meantime? Either you just let the biomass stay there and stay there and stay there, or you graze it or harvest it for hay or or just use it for hunting. But one aspect of doing it on your own rather than in a CRP-type project is you walk away from annual payments. It makes it a little more difficult, but the nice part of that is you walk away from stipulation by somebody else telling you what you have to do, when you have to do it, and how you have to do it. So you gain a lot of independence and but a lot of risk, but the rewards, I think, offset that.
0: Mary Jo, and you've made this clear before, I know, uh, when talking about your farm, but and and Laverne has made this clear as well, that a real overriding driver of what you do out here is a real incentive for you is to increase biodiversity. You really see that as a basis of a sustainable farm, both in, in, environmentally and economically, and from a quality of life point of view.
2: Biodiversity is probably something that uh, over time has developed as one of the Main items of importance. Part of it is just for quality of life. We really are enhanced. Every species that comes to our farm or that we discover seems to find a niche and benefit the whole, but I think for Risk management. Each of each of the plants that grow in the prairie, uh, you know, thrives in a certain environment, and it provides resilience. It, it it's uh, the difference between putting all of your eggs in one basket or having many many baskets. You know, some times, some years, some uh, rainfall events. All of these things impact one crop, and if it's one crop that you know, contracts a disease or you constantly have to stay ahead of pests. You know, if you eradicate all other things from a system and you're you're just depending on a single crop, it, it seems to me to be a very risky situation. And we keep discovering uh, great things about prairie plants that we didn't know before. A lot happens underneath the soil that we don't know about, but we know that there's deep roots down there. We know that we're building soil, we're holding soil, we're helping water quality. All of these things are important to us, even though they may not have a specific dollar value attached. Uh, We know in the future that Uh, All of these things are going to become increasingly more important to more people. If we look at what the pharmaceutical industry is built on, it's medicinal plants or uh, plants from biological sources. If we lose species, we lose the ability to have those benefits from medicinal plants or the nutritional qualities for our animals or the habitat for uh, insects. All of these things we, we... we really value and wish that uh over time that more of our society would come to value biodiversity as as the completely central point of sustainability you can't be sustainable without biodiversity uh,
0: we're up here on all of these hills around here are highly erosive it's quite striking, but you've got these uh um, these uh hills around here and at one time, as Laverne pointed out earlier, it was all covered in corn, and now you've got grass. You've got some native prairie. It must be quite a, a contrast for you to look out and when you're just look even working on the farm or just looking out in general for what it used to be.
2: It is a contrast, but it is also uh, a sense of security uh, when we look at you know. Not, at one time, yes, some of these hills and knobs were covered with corn, but at one time all of them were covered with grass. And the ones that have never been uncovered from grass are exactly the same height and the same terrain. What we find with farming, especially tillage, is that the hilltops erode into the valleys over time and the topsoil is moved uh, away from the hilltops. All of these changes occur. And so the, the native prairie hilltops are really the, the gold standard, The where we started to learn about what the prairie could teach us and we're still learning from what the prairie can teach us. Uh, The the land can only erode if we remove those important deep-rooted diverse plantings from it. And we've decided to stop doing that and and to actually start incorporating many more perennials. So the native prairie hills, hundreds of plants of diversity, different varieties. We can't ever mimic, we can't build a prairie. We can only mimic it in uh, a way it takes thousands of years to develop. So we're just starting a little way back in the road that we feel we probably shouldn't have left.
0: What's the one of the one or two main things you've noticed different about the farm since it's become more diverse and since it, what's what have you really been struck by?
2: I think that there's a lot of beneficial insects that help us balance what would be um, pests, and that the pests we don't intervene with pesticides. Most of the farm is certified organic. We have um, some row crops that you know. There's been plenty of planes around us spraying. For aphids, but we don't find those aphids. We find the original old-fashioned ladybugs uh, that are there, along with sort of a Jurassic Park of insects, and that's that's all that's that what we can see. We the microbiological uh, work in, within the soil is invisible to us, but we can see the effects of uh, water holding capacity and uh, these grasslands being huge sponges and the water quality in the ponds and no runoff. And uh, even on our neighbor's land on these hilly terrains, with these big rainfall events we've been having, it will take up the weed stubble by the roots and still form gullies. And when you see that, the same way you see the black and white in the ditches in in a March, you know you think it's two thousand and eleven and we're still treating our soil like this and we still don't get it that our life depends on this
0: environmental scientists or natural resource professionals visit a farm like this they always seem very surprised that there can be a balance an ecological balance uh, places for wildlife good water quality systems a good a healthy hydrological cycle that some of them, frankly, get into that mindset that this can only take place on, say, CRP land, set-aside land, or on a wildlife refuge or in a park-type setting, that working lands can't really provide that. Is that something you found, and have you seen maybe a little bit of a switch uh, in recent years?
2: We have found that, and I see now a bit of a coming together. Um, but I still see you know, people making the comment that, well, you can do this because you have marginal lands. And that simply isn't true, because we have grown and could grow 200 bushel an acre acre corn. This is not like the last resort uh, of what we could do with this land. We see all around us corn and beans. Uh, We definitely could do that. But I think people are realizing, conservationists in particular, that they can't achieve their conservation goals without really uh, working together with private landowners and coming to a place where we all benefit and really aligning what we do with conservation, with what we do with agriculture, with what we do with health, health of the environment, personal health, health of communities, it is all uh, at in danger unless we can really work to connect the dots and work together to achieve those mutual goals we all have.
0: Yeah, and I think that brings up a final point is, and you had made this point earlier, is we need to also put our money where our mouth is. If it's if this is the kind of agriculture you want to support, you got to find ways to support it as an eater or a consumer or whatever.
2: I do try to make that point very blatantly now because I have discovered that maybe people aren't doing, practicing things in their everyday life, how they eat. That would match what goals they spend their lives working to get. I I thought that there was sometimes a connection, but sometimes there isn't. And so, if people do want to see more grass and perennials on the landscape, they really need to buy grass-based agricultural food products and support farmers who are going this way. It's we can't do it alone. If people are not differentiating that our products are different from systems that produce uh, beef in in a different way, then we. we We don't have the market to sustain what we're doing here, and I can't stress enough the importance of people really joining in, knowing how their food is produced, and supporting systems that they believe in that are healthy for the environment and for their community.
0: For information on working lands conservation, see www.profitsfromperennials.org. For more on the forward operation, see www.localfoods.umn.edu backslash Prairie Horizons. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore@landstewardshipproject.org at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. (laughs)